The following program is brought to you by Blood, Sweat, Tears, and listeners like you. To support this show and all of the shows within Twib Nation, consider becoming a subscriber of our pay service, The Twibularity, at twib.me forward slash subscribe. That's twib.me forward slash subscribe. Or you can give a one-time donation at donate.twib.me. That's donate.twib.me. We've all learned how important media is and who tells our stories. Help us be the media that you want to hear and that the media is afraid to hear. It's kind of hard to listen to yourself become irrelevant. You are now listening to Twib FM. Real talk, real awesome. Finally, I'm finally free. Finally, I'm finally me. Welcome, welcome, welcome to the Black Girl Nerds Podcast. My name is Jamie. I am your host. Thank you so much for tuning in. We have an amazing guest tonight. Our guest is Baratunde Thurston. He is the author of How to Be Black, CEO of Cultivated Wit, writer, comedian, entrepreneur. So if you have any questions for our guest tonight, use the hashtag BGN Podcast that puts you in the feed with other live listeners. Or you can call in to TWIB. The studio number is 718-404-9320. Again, that number is 718-404-9320. My co-host tonight is Theolonius Legend um, of Black Comics Chat. Thank you so much for coming on and co-hosting with me tonight, Theolonius. Uh, thanks for having me. I'm looking forward to it. Awesome. So I'm going to start with some announcements, and then I will toss the virtual mic over to Theolonius to introduce himself, and then we will get into the questions of our guest. So first and foremost, if you go to our website, blackgirlnerds.com, check out the right sidebar. There's ad space on there. It's called blog ads. Allow us to find your audience. So if you click on that red link, it says uh, purchase your blog ads today. That'll take you over to a shopping cart and you can elect to use ad space on a weekly basis, a monthly basis, yearly basis. Um, so check that out when you get an opportunity, uh, if, especially if you're someone who has a book or you have a good or service that you want to promote. Also on our website, if you go to the top menu, there's a calendar there. It's on the right side of the top menu bar. Click on that, and that gives you our calendar of all the events that's happening here on the Black Girl Nerds um, community, the online community. So I participate heavily in a lot of live tweets, as you know, so much so that I, I've had to create a calendar for it. So check that out. Um, pretty much every day of the week, there's something going on. In addition to live tweeting, there is also podcast episodes that are on there that'll tell you who our future guests are, as well as guest appearances that are happening, conventions that we're going to, public speaking events, panels, et cetera. Um, so it's blackgirlnerds.com forward slash calendar. And if you have not done so already, check our newsletter out. It is distributed twice a month on the 15th and the 1st. Uh, so if you check it out on the right sidebar, you can enter your email in there and get all of that information sent conveniently to you in your email inbox. All right. So I'm going to pass the virtual mic over to our co-host, Theolonius Legend, just go ahead and introduce yourself. Let me uh, let the audience know of any sort of projects that you're working on, as well as your social media shout outs. 
Um, hey everybody, thanks for listening. This is Thelonious Legend. Um, just finishing up my second novel uh, about black girls with superpowers that tries to examine the intersection of race, identity, privilege, and class. Uh, first one was well received. Looking forward to how good the uh, second one does. Also, the uh, starter and one of the hosts of Black Comics Chat that tries to give uh, independent comic artists that display uh, diverse characters some shine, uh, which we do the same thing with on Black Writers Chat, uh, and host and, and admin of Blurred Book Club. So again, thanks for having me. I'm looking forward to the discussion tonight. All right. So I'm going to introduce our guests and we will jump into questions Baratunde Thurston is the CEO and co-founder of Cultivated Wit and co-host of the podcast About Race. He wrote the New York Times bestseller, How to Be Black, and served for five years as director of digital for the satirical news outlet, The Onion. When he's not delivering talks at schools and gatherings such as SXSW and TED, he writes the monthly back page column for Fast Company and contributes to the MIT Media Lab as a director's fellow. Baratunde has advised the Obama White House, has more than 10 years experience in stand-up comedy, and most importantly, more than 30 years experience of being black. Thank you for coming on to the show tonight, Baratunde. Thank you so, so much for having me. And uh, that made me sound pretty nerdy, that uh, that intro there. So hopefully I'll be able to keep up with the title of this show, at least in part, two-thirds. Uh, <laughs> try to hold down the the black and the nerd part and uh, you can handle the girl part thank you so much for having me and do i sound all right there's some background noise around i just want to make sure i'm doing my job to make this not sound like crap you sound excellent okay good perfect all right so um let me dive into this question first i read how to be black um thank you thank you very much yes the children i don't have yet uh thank you (laughs) excellent excellent book uh, you mentioned in various chapters how being the lone black person in a group of non-blacks automatically places you in a situation where by default you have to represent the entire black community. I know what that's like now in my current job. Um, why do it's you a think... It's sacred honor. It's a sacred honor. Just it is. That position. It, yeah. it, it's, there's a lot of weight there. <laughs> why, why do you think we as people of color encounter these awkward situations? Because uh, people not of color can be lazy. and they get really excited and they they to to their credit often and from a beautiful place they want to know and you know we're a very segregated nation especially talking in the u.s context we're very segregated so we actually don't have a lot of opportunities to interact across race and culture the the nation is diverse but our living scenarios are not so in that rare case where you find that rare person from another universe it's just like wow like if you met a unicorn wouldn't you ask all the questions and so we are you know mystical beings to so many uh non-people of color that their enthusiasm their exuberance it's like a market bubble and uh you know we can choose to pop it or or to play into it but i think the reason for it to get to your question is is that we don't have much cultural experience much cross-cultural experience and so even good natured attempts to reach out uh, create awkward situations where uh, children are asked to like represent you know all of black history in the mm-hmm. classroom when they're you know eight nine ten years old uh, because even the teacher doesn't have enough experience to necessarily relate the topic or just feel so awkward that they put pressure on this little person to kind of be a, a race leader. Mm, mm. I, I like the fact that you refer to us as myth- mythical creatures. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, that that that's the um that's like the positive 
end of of being an other. The negative end is like monsters, right? <laughs> like that's that's what right. cops see sometimes, right? That's that's right. That's implicit bias. That's that hair trigger, mm-hmm. like oh, you see a twelve year old as a twenty one year old because you're sort of racially dyslexic. Um, mm. So yeah, there's there's some uh, fun with it, and there's some tragedy uh, that goes along with it. Yeah. I heard you on Lewis Howe's podcast and Oh, cool. Yeah. Yeah, that was a great School show. Cool of awesomeness. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And and you said something that was really profound. You said, and I quote, quiet failure is important. Um, because if you stumble out loud, that's people's only impression of you. And then you add that a lot of people that are told will never make it actually do in fact make it. So can you elaborate on what this means to you and to others who are still stumbling? Yeah, you know, there's we were promised a a land of uh, milk, uh, honey, transparency, cat videos, awesome opportunity, equality under the law, all kinds of magical things, especially in the age of the Internet. And uh, but with so many cameras and so much attention and so much focus on little moments in people's lives magnified to somehow represent their whole lives making mistakes um ugly or light is often overinterpreted too much weight is given to it and you look at specific i'm talking very vaguely let's take specifically stand up comedy as an art form which depends on mostly failure like the vast majority of your work as a comedian it sucks even when you're good it's bad you know you like see somebody working out their material and part of the art of, of comedy is that it requires the public to be to complete itself you 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 can't do stand-up comedy in a vacuum that's just talking to yourself and uh that might be funny but it's also kind of sad and not really that effective for building a career or any kind of following so when you are now you know performing all of your worst newest stuff in a public realm that's captured and shared with other people that's no longer quiet that is very loud failure and somebody might write you off and you couldn't become a Chris Rock or a Moms Mabley or a Louis C.K. or a Whoopi Goldberg because you were judged so quickly so soon. Um, and that goes into like this larger theme of, of second chances and, you know, the idea of writing people off as, uh, what was the second half of that quote that I said that sounds so beautiful? <laughs> you, you had also said that, you know, when you stumble out loud that that's people's only impression of you and that, um, uh, people are told that they will never make it, but in fact, actually they do. Make yeah. It. So, so the idea that you'll never make it is, uh, in the, in a world where instant success is a real thing, mm-hmm. then yeah, you stumble once, you'll never make it. That wasn't fast enough. But in reality, instant success is just, um, it's a mirage, right? It's a, it's a, it's a lie. <laughs> Basically, there's very few real world examples of instant success. Somebody was grinding away in obscurity relative to the rest of the world, messing up all day, every day, and they messed up maybe a little less than everybody else, or they got good faster than others, but the ability to slip, to fall, to make mistakes is so essential to doing anything great, I think, uh, unless you're that very, very, very rare savant type person that just can can do no wrong. I'm, I'm that type of person. I've never made a mistake, but there are people out there who've made mistakes, and I read about them, and I feel terrible for them, um, and I understand that there's a that there's a there's a cost to us to expect such an instant level of making it and being told you'll never make it. I think that's mostly delivered to people who would if we gave them a little more room. 
if we let it breathe uh, a bit. And uh, and in the most extreme case, you know, you you take a look at uh, other end of the spectrum. I talk about stand up comedy. Let's talk about an incarcerated person. So they've made a terrible mistake, generally, to end up in in imprisoned. But is that one mistake? All of their decisions? Is that the potential future defined only by that potentially one horrific decision? Uh, will they never make it, or will they just not make it for a while while they? get their act together and pay the price for whatever bad decision they made. So we condemn ourselves, whether it's in an artistic career or in the ability to vote and be a member of society again after committing a crime, when we when we think about um, failure as final. Wow, that's so profound. Thank you for sharing that with us. Yeah, thank you. Theolonius? Hey, um, how's it going? It's nice to uh, converse with you tonight. You too, you too. Where are you located, by the way? Your name is amazing. <laughs> yeah, you both have very unique names. <laughs> unique name solidarity. Unique name solidarity. I like that. I'm, I'm in the Chicago area. So next okay. time you come okay. through for a show, I'll definitely check you out. Yeah, great. Uh, I love Chicago, yeah. especially when it's warm. Yeah, no doubt, no doubt. Love the book. I especially love uh, the interview with uh, Terry Gross on NPR, who's one of my favorite interviewers. Oh, yeah. Um, and there's been a, uh, a movement of late uh, with a lot of celebrities um, as far as defining themselves as new black or something other than black. And I know your your title is uh, kind of a satirical uh, and tongue-in-cheek as a self-appointed authoritarian on, authoritarian on blackness. But I still want to get your, your thoughts on this new black movement. Is it healthy? What's it really about? And why are people that are seem to be entitled in a position of power and influence um, promoting this or speaking on this. Yeah, I just I want to clarify something. I'm not a self-appointed leader or spokesperson for all black people. Uh, there was a vote, and uh, <laughs> it, it was through the Bitcoin protocols. It's very secure. Um, okay. Very credible. So and you guys use PGP? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. No, triple keys, triple keys. Triple keys, uh, right, right, we, right. We keep a third key in the cloud. It's great. <laughs> so I didn't ask for this role. You know, you but, you know, I accept the will of the people. And I, I hope just to not totally embarrass them. Um, the new, the, the idea of new black, you know, so here's a, a couple of thoughts on that. There is, um, I have an instinct about it, which is what's wrong with the old black. And, and the old black has served us well. And the old black gave us jazz and the old black survived the middle passage and the old black built kingdoms and the old black invented all kinds of beautiful things and gave the world hip hop, which still keeps providing all kinds of beautiful returns on culture. So, Let's not be so quick to distance ourselves from quote unquote old black. Old black got us this far. Maybe we want to stick with old black. Um, as far as, you know, the idea of new black, there, there is a beautiful sentiment at the heart of it, which is let us redefine ourselves. Let us not be solely defined by struggle, well, by pain, by a history of, of negative experience. And in fact, it was the head of this network, uh, Elon James White, who I interviewed for the book. And, you know, he talked about uh, when I interviewed him in the, in the black panel, him and, and a woman named Jaqueta Zatmari both touched on this idea that our history as black people in this nation can be so open. You know, we can redefine it at any moment because we're not captive to 6,000 years of doctrine and orthodoxy and religion and, and specific culture. So that, that there is some liberation in that. And I see the spirit of that reinvention, which is a very American idea that you can rewrite your narrative, you can, whether you left your land on purpose or were dragged kicking and screaming and barely made it, that you're here now and 
you can kind of write your own uh, history book with your actions every day. So there's a beautiful component of New Black, which is about that. Let's let's be positive. Let's surround ourselves with love. Let's let's define ourselves as successful, as entrepreneurial, rather than as uh, survivors or recovering victims. Um, but the the way it can be communicated so much is by very very successful people with a lot of resources, seeming to want to distance themselves from old black, and and drawing this line in the sand between well I'm not that type of black I'm not I'm not one of those black I'm not the un, unemployed black I'm not the incarcerated black I'm the new black I'm the magazine cover black I'm the Maybach black I'm May black you know like I'm creating a whole new thing over here that's very successful and very cosmopolitan and the way that gets communicated, I think it's probably more simple than the way they intend it because it's more exciting to suggest that Pharrell hates black people, um, or for example. But I, I, that's how I see the whole issue playing out. So I love old black. I think I understand where new black is coming from. I am bothered by the idea that we want to separate ourselves too much from our history because there's uh, there's a lot of beauty in there. Okay, so I, I think the first time I, I was kind of aware of this, this new black movement was Tiger Woods when he said he's a Coblin Asian. And uh, my feelings were mixed. I, I yeah. agree that everybody needs to define themselves on their own terms. Uh, but at the same time, you draw a tremendous amount of support, monies, and and as some will find in the celebrity community, uh, back when um, you're not so new and shiny anymore and, and the media or the part of the B is, you know, is, is at your is at your back. So yeah. um, I have mixed feelings about it. I'm old black. What you just said that? about ability to define themselves is really important. We, we talked about this on 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 the other podcast that I'm on more regularly, uh, our national conversation about conversations about race which you mentioned in the intro. Thank you for that. Raquel Cepeda is one of our co-hosts, and she's Dominican. We have Tanner Colby, who's white. We have me, who speaks for all black people. And Raquel was very um, much in support of this idea that someone like Raven Simone, for example, has the absolute right to create the narrative that she needs and wants, and it is. And not that she's, been, she's defined, like, I am a human being. I am multiracial. Like, and there is, I don't think there's an easy space to occupy here i think we have to kind of hear all sides of it we have to respect old black kind of see where people come from new black but not be too quick to to dis in either direction because if we if we attempt to with withhold people's growth and development and self-definition like self-determination is what we have fought for so we can't be too mad at members of our own tribe who are trying to define themselves now like that's that's part of the struggle and and it's showing up in different ways. So I don't I want to be too nasty to uh, to those folks because I I think I really understand where that idea that I am going to call myself this that I believe in that that I am X Y or Z is very important for individuals as well as collectives to be able to articulate and, and own that. Right, I could I could get with that. Um, for the record, I'm I'm still all black. Um, <laughs> I tried, man. I tried. <laughs> so, my my second question is, and I think this is a big one with the blur community because Jamie had a um, uh, a post on her Black Girl Nerd site that was very received about uh, not being black enough or or being defined in something that's other. Uh, there seems to be an obsession with. Uh, first of all, equating blackness to the lowest common denominator, like you got to be thugged out. Right. And second, there's the degrees of blackness. And there was uh, one character in your book that was like, well, you cannot black me out from Africa. 
<laughs> yeah, Derek Ashong. Which I thought was brilliant, which I thought was brilliant. Yeah. But every day there's uh whether it's in middle school, whether it's in the office. It's happened to me in the office a couple of times and, and uh everybody that's in IT know that uh there are not a lot of men of color in IT, mm-hmm. uh, especially in some of your, your major metropolitan areas like, you know, Chicago, New York. And in Atlanta there's I've run into a few. Uh but there seems to be degrees of blackness with fifty cent at one end and Carlton from French Fist at the other. <laughs> You know, and, and I guess the more thugged out are the, the blacker you are. And I want to get your, your opinion. Uh, you talked about it a bit in your book, but I want to get your opinion on this obsession with defining blackness by black people themselves and by white people. Yeah, it's, uh, um, this is, this is a bit of a tragedy because you don't see, except in maybe like weird little Aryan nation type pockets and people who live still with, their grandmother in their basements and can't spell worth a damn, like people trying to outwhite each other and and try to somehow be the most authentic version of that. I think part of why it happens is we've made a market out of blackness. We have made blackness a very successful business culturally. We've made hip hop's a great version of certain athletic pursuits that we dominate and there's a lot of money in images of blackness associated with certain parts of pop culture and if you don't adhere to those images which are the ones that are reinforced it's not the full history that people have some kind of equal impression of we have very strong images of blackness from like the past 30 years and they're usually people flying through the air or heading to prison or rapping and rhyming so so very well and it's heavily entertainment heavily criminal and that ends up being probably the the subconscious impression of what blackness is because it's the majority of the images and sounds of blackness that people experience. Um, and that's tied up in the money that's being made off of all that. So I think we get caught up in it because we're subject to the same rules of society as everybody else. Like we see ourselves through others' eyes. We see ourselves through very heavily edited, selectively promoted identities. And, and then we internalize that. And then reflect that back out when we call somebody an Oreo or when we call somebody not down, we call somebody not black enough uh, because they are not you know, the most thuggish, ruggish version uh, that we have been taught to expect from, from ourselves. Well, to me, it's a question of authenticity, too. Yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, which uh, a lot of people question, how authentic can you be mm-hmm. if you're in a software and, and read comic books? You know, you and need that's, to <laughs> that's, oh, that's just so stupid. There's, um, like, I no, can. No, because I'm in software and read comic books. So, yeah, I think it's stupid as well. Yeah, and it's just like, fine. Okay, you want to, like, <laughs> if you don't want to be a part of the world, you don't want to be part of the future, if you don't want to have any cultural relevance to the way we're going to be communicating, then yes, avoid technology, avoid nerd things and geek things, and just be alone. Just be a, a authentically blackly lonely. Because. <laughs> The future is not has no patience for that. Like it's gonna come regardless, and there is a bunch of rationale I can provide for it. Like oh, it's the commercialization of hip hop, all that whole thing I just went on. But at the end of the day, which I do not like saying, but we're actually about at the end of the day, so I feel like legitimate in using that reference to time. It doesn't fucking matter. Like, right, right. And that authentic black person that you're being compared to does not exist in any yeah, yeah. does not exist. Yeah, I mean, so. You know, they're comparing you against a straw man. It's just, right. you know, we're not, I, I do, I think when we talk about this, and this is, this is, 
a show uh, that focuses on this topic and you're asking me, I wrote this book, so it all makes sense, but we, women writ large have to deal with this, the, the ideal woman that doesn't exist. Men have to deal with the ideal male form that doesn't exist, but in Photoshop and sculpture. So we are always trying to achieve and align ourselves with some identity that is not legitimate. So and, is it, and, well, let me jump in really quick. Um, yeah. I want to um, get to your book because a lot of the folks that uh, are listening in live are writers. Our co-host, <laughs> Theolonius, is writer. Uh, so what helps you stay motivated to write? And when you're staring at a blinking cursor all day long, what, what inspires you to keep on going? Uh, I don't want to lose to a cursor. It's a battle. <laughs> I want to take you out. I got to keep you moving. I um I don't always feel inspired to write. There are uh and I usually don't stare at blank pages and start there. I usually start with a notepad, uh virtual generally. I do carry a physical one around, but usually Evernote, no endorsement deals. I just that's my preferred note taking service. And uh and I I've, I've got snippets of thoughts from observations, experiences, often anger that uh and, and that's where the inspiration to write comes from it's usually in the context of something else it's rarely a blank page there are writers i know who start their morning or their week day or weekend morning or evening or right before they go to bed or get up in the middle of the night and just stare at a blank page and try to fill it i'm not that that writer i usually start with some ingredient some kind of raw material that's been collected uh throughout the previous amount of time and then say okay what what can i make out of this? What can I fashion out of this? What am I feeling? And then that can start to free flow uh, around that. So the motivation, that was the mechanic. The motivation is uh, probably like a mix of vanity because I feel like I should be heard and I like the sound of my voice and the, and the flow of the text on screen when, when I'm the one creating that text. So I, I like what I have to say often um, and that's, that's okay. The other is the... Um, the idea that there is a better way to communicate an idea or a, a way to communicate an idea to people who haven't been exposed to it yet. Like there is some, there's an act of creation in writing uh, that is really exciting where, you know, you put something out there in a way that is new or to people for whom it's new and you, you feel it, you feel the response. You know, sometimes you just know it and there's no response. You just, press publish, press save, or it's just, it's autosave because everything is autosave now. But in a more dramatic version of writing, you ship off your manuscript via owl to the temple of words. And you know that you've unleashed the truth in some new way. And that is very motivating. It is not very common, <laughs> hmm. but when it happens, it's good for like a long period after that until you get like the, the next one and the next one. So that, that motivates me. The idea of, of spreading, you know, an idea worth kind of engaging with to, to new folks or in a new way. We did a blurred book club with you back in February of last year. I wanted to say thank you so much for being an active participant in that because we had oh, just yeah. started thank it. You. Yeah, we had just started it and uh I reached out to you and you were like, Yeah, sure. I was like, Oh my god, okay, great. <laughs> <laughs> you weren't expecting me to say yes. No, <laughs> I wasn't. Was like, <laughs> um, so you know, we discussed your book, How to Be Black on that um chat, and and thank you for stopping by. But I have to know, this is a very important question because you had brought this up during the chat that you had never seen the Shawshank Redemption. 
Have yeah. you seen the Shawshank Redemption since then? Nope. Nope. I've had no. years. I've had years and I still haven't done it. Here's what I did do though. I, I bought it on iTunes and ah. I've taken a pretty dramatic step toward seeing the Shawshank Redemption. And, and if, if there are listeners uh, who want to judge me in this moment, I would only <laughs> ask that you judge me not on the the sum of my achievements, but rather the progress I make toward my goal. Um, and I have taken a pretty big step toward watching the Shawshank Redemption. So, Okay. All right. Well, we, we need you to Third get on that. Talk, <laughs> Next time we talk, I'll have seen it. <laughs> awesome. All right. Go ahead, Theolonius. Um, okay. So your, your book is funny, satirical, and, and at times really honest, uh, especially for, um, I think, think men of color who were um, at times ostracized because they were too smart for their own good. And there really wasn't a place for people to place them because they weren't easily defined in a box. Um, so when you were writing that book, was there really a part you thought maybe twice about sharing or was it cathartic to just get it out there and let it flow? There were, there were stories that, um, that didn't make it or, or parts of the book that didn't make it because I ran out of time, uh, because I didn't think they were good enough or funny enough or because they involved other people's lives to such a degree that I didn't feel like I had a right to include that. Um, and I definitely made some calls out of protection in some ways to, uh, wait on that and like let them tell pieces of their story on their own and don't let me put their life on blast in a book that might end up widely circulated, which this one did. You never know with a book, but that could be a real act of, uh, that could be very violating for someone. So there, for those reasons, those are the things that didn't make it in the book. There was not much about my own experience that hit me as like, oh, I would, but no, I'm not gonna. And, you were very yeah. honest about your, about your father and, and that relationship. Yeah. And, uh, I mean, there's, there's so many men and, and young boys of color that I think could identify, uh, because absenteeism, um, I mean, it's across the board, um, you know, across economics, across ec economics, uh, uh, regions, but, um, that struck me as, uh, relevant because I could definitely identify with that. And, yeah. Uh, thank you, man. Thank well, you. and I appreciate, I appreciate it because, um, uh, reading your book, there was a lot of commonalities with me because I was also, um, I guess on the outs at certain times because, yeah. I was too smart for my good, but at the same time, I was, I was good in sports. So cats didn't really know how to define me. And it wasn't later until I got, you know, figure out I need to define myself. Uh, but also you discuss in your book how the ability to seamlessly, seamlessly navigate between different worlds, whether you're in the uh, halls of uh, Harvard or on the streets of DC. Can you tell me about that thought process and how you came along with that? Um, yeah, the, well, seamless navigation. Uh, that's, that's putting a really nice spin on, on what's often awkward transitions <laughs> with, with like a manual transmission car and you're used to automatic or something rough. So, uh, there is a, there's a natural need for skill in, in code switching and being able to feel comfortable in and communicate with folks from, from different parts of your world. And, you know, I, I learned that early on coming out of 
DC in the 80s. And just for those who were listening and didn't know uh, the reference to my father, he was killed when I was very young, five, six years old, and so wasn't around uh, beyond that. And so my mother raised my older sister uh, and and me, and she did a great job. And I I never felt a big hole. I, I wasn't totally broken uh, because she filled that space uh, exceedingly well, like superhumanly well, possibly non-replicably well. Um, but back to this, you know, the seamless transition between worlds concept. I think you know it was very interesting for me to come out of a 1980s DC that, and a block in, in Columbia Heights and Mount Pleasant that was very black and a bit brown. And that started to shift to very brown and a bit black during, during my time and definitely after my time. And then to be enrolled in a culturally African celebratory rites of passage community in another part of DC that was like red, black, and green and drumming and kente cloth and, and that whole thing, which is a whole different type of black. That's like assertively revolutionary black which isn't around the way black at all. Um, and then to go to a school like Sidwell Friends, which I started attending in seventh grade, and be around Jewish and white and, and a different class community. And so that first year was uh, hard. I was involved in those three strong worlds at once. I was at Sidwell for the first time. I was doing this rites of passage thing. And I was still living in Washington, D.C. proper on the, in the community I had, had grown up in. And so, yeah, we like I would get on the bus to go to school and I'd see my friends getting on a different bus to go to their public school. And we would just start to drift and like, oh, you're going to that fancy white school now. That didn't feel great. <laughs> it was true. Like, as a matter of fact, I am going to that fancy white school, but that's Sounds not an appropriate response. You know, right. like that gets you nothing. And then to go to the super black revolutionary community and have a different check on being at Sidwell to come home and have all this kente blackness. Like, it's really, um, I guess it's amazing that my mind survived when I lay it out all like that. But over time, I, I think I was, I benefited. I benefited from a lot of support and loving people in all these different communities who weren't full of self-loathing, uh, masquerading as confidence and teasing. And there comes a point, or there came a point, I can't speak in general, but for me there came a point where I accepted that I'm all these things and it was not an either or it was a yes and kind of construct of identity. And I was able to reconcile that. Yeah, I'm, I'm this and I have white friends and I love, you know, tofu and I'm really into <laughs> public television and I play with computers in my free time and I read information week for fun. And I'm not an IT manager at age 14, but I'm going to read this weird magazine because it's fascinating to me. And I also love like diggable planets and poor righteous teachers and Michael Jackson. And I will watch the Cosby show over the Simpsons any night. Uh, so that was, it became clearer to me between seventh grade and probably college that the conflict was almost like a like instant success, a mirage that I could, choose to just accept all these parts of myself and enjoy it or try to defend myself against other parts of myself and have this internal civil war, which is very damaging and war as war always is, uh, even when it's just inside of your own head, especially maybe when it's just inside your own head. I want to move uh, to tech for a second. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, I want to quote you again. You say we want to be loved, seen and acknowledged. 
And you brought this up in an interview about social media. Do you mm. think that we are more connected to technology than human interaction? And does this help us or hurt us? Often we are. And it, it helps and it hurts. It's all those things. But I think we're in a phase, I hope we're in a transition phase where the um, – where we get so enamored of the tools that we forget to use them for some greater purpose. And we just collect tools and we show off our tools. Hey, check out my hammer. That's great. Have you built anything? <laughs> <laughs> I got a paintbrush. What have you painted though? And, and so hoarding tools is pretty exciting in the beginning because you get to brag about all your tools. But if you haven't made anything, it's all pretty pointless. And I, I think we're in this phase with, with something like social media and, you know, the pervasion uh, of internet and, and various digital technologies overall, where we're really excited and, and we like to flash things and we get obsessed with the things rather than what they're supposed to deliver to us, what they're supposed to offer and provide and in some ways improve. So, yeah, we are obsessed with taking pictures of everything instead of experiencing the thing we're taking pictures of. And we're upgrading our phones even though we probably don't need – the newest one at every single cycle like are we really is it really adding any value or is it just creating a very awkward and painful and exploitative labor relationship in a country far far away where we don't have to think about it uh, and providing great shareholder value for the company that convinced us to do it and providing some jobs you know it's, it's all mixed bag but i think we're just so excited that we're not seeing those other layers of what's going on so we are definitely in a phase of connecting with technology um, often more than people. And uh, even when we're connecting with people, we're also often doing it in very nasty ways, uh, thanks to the technology that allows us to be nasty at a scale never before achievable. Um, and you asked the second part that I forgot. Uh, well, the second part was just, um, does it help us or does it hurt us? Yeah, it, 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 it's, um, you know, there's a, there's a great power like organizing has never been so fluid and so rapid and so low cost. I mean, look at Black Lives Matter. Like mm -hmm. how fast, how fast has that taken off? You can basically count from like, is it basically a Ferguson to North Charleston? And look at, we're talking body cams, we've got legislation, we're talking about retraining police forces from a citizen. Like it's, this is a decade's worth of work, and I'm not saying it all started in Ferguson, but that recent spike, I mean, this has been building for decades. Rodney King happened and, and Abner Louima and all that, but there's a – the technological infrastructure to support organizing is a great help for organizers and for, for the battles uh, and struggles that they're, that they're waging. So that's a, that's a help. Um, but, you know, we're, we're also great at hurting people. We're, we're great at bullying people. We're great at making people lose their jobs because – they said something that bothered us. Like, is that the standard now? Like you said, one thing that bothered me, and so you don't get to keep your income. Mm. That's that's an extremely high price to pay for one statement, and I'm and not for public figures. You know, we're not talking about presidential candidates here. We're talking about just random people on Twitter thinking they're funny, and then losing their jobs. <laughs> like that is that's that's hurtful. I think we're hurt by that. I think we're hurt by the anonymity the seeming anonymity and mobs uh you know the anonymity of crowds granted by a lot of this technology and uh and maybe more deeply where we're harmed by the feeling that we're getting more connected 
but our empathy is not necessarily getting any deeper. And and so if we are technologically more connected than ever, but we are not sort of humanistically more connected, we if our capacity for empathy is not greater, uh, is not rising with the number of nodes and the physical networks we're a part of, then you know the gains are false. Uh, they're, they're, they're not what they seem to be, not as great as they seem to be. I had written an article about black nerds on my website. This was about a couple of years ago, mm-hmm. and uh, I featured you in it. Um, I, I don't know if you call yourself a black nerd or a blurred, um, but I, I featured you in it, and you had actually retweeted the article way back, and I was so excited about that. Um, but I wanted to know, what, what is your opinion of the portmanteau term blurred, and would you consider yourself to be one? I love it, and yes. Yay! <laughs> uh, that was easy. I, I'm a I'm a word mashup fan. I'm 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 the man who who makes everything into his name. Baratunde mm-hmm. is one of the most flexible like sh- structures of letters ever. This is we're doing a podcast of Tunde. This is a chat of Tunde. I'm a blur to Tunde. Like that just I didn't even think about any of that. That just happens. So yeah, I'm going to be a fan of like black nerd equals blurred next. Blur to Tunde. I love it. <laughs> Hashtag blur to Tunde. There you go. <laughs> All right, Theolonius. Oh, you there? We lost him. That's what that sound was. I thought I heard someone drop, and I'm glad oh. it wasn't me. Oh, that okay. Work inside of my mind instead of Skype. <laughs> well, okay. Well, then let me move on to my next question. Um, yeah. I, I wanted to talk about the word black again. Your your book brings up a great deal of snarky discussion about blackness and what it is to be black. But do you think that there's an innate fear of the word? Why or why not? Ooh, and I think it might depend on who we're talking about. There's certainly a fear of the word by, I don't even know if it's all non-black people or just particularly white people in the U.S. of a certain type who feel like saying the word black is somehow also a, a racial derogatory term. And you, know, you it's in that awkward moment where you refuse to describe somebody's race. You're like, oh, you know, it was the guy with the... He had the shoes on. He was wearing pants. You know, he was standing in the room uh, vertically, like when people stand. And he's like, you're the black one. Oh, I mean, I, I would never say that. But yeah, so it's that. So there's a fear of it in in that sense. And then we got like our own people and our migration through, uh, you know, the terms whether it's Negro, Negro American, Afro American, African American, people of African descent. Um, <laughs> I mean, we're just getting longer uh, and longer. I like black because I'm a fan of efficiency. And yes. I want to be able to say other things besides black. And if I'm going to say I'm a person of African descent, then that's going to probably remove some characters to say that I'm also like a geek and a dancer and I like to cook. And, you know, that's mechanically that's not really how life works, but I do. I'm fine with black. And uh, I don't I don't sense, though, that there is like a super great I don't think there's a permanent fear uh, of black out there. I think we we our language goes in waves and and we'll be we'll be black again. Nice, nice. I want to take it to Twitter. We got a question here. Actually, he was a guest on our last show. This is from Joseph Illich and he wants to know your social media diet program was very helpful for me as a writer. Any plans to expand on that or is there a new book? Oh wow. Uh trying to make work for me. Thank you so much. Uh, no new book in the works. Uh, the new work is, is the podcast and, and mouthing off on television as much as possible and, uh, and the column that keeps me busy enough. I, I will do more books. I have 
several other book ideas in me, but I'm not actively working on any right now. Um, and on the, the social media diet, uh, I did this unplugging thing, 25 days, no social media. This was a couple years ago. It's a very popular feature for writers to do, and so I'm, I wasn't the first one to do it. I will definitely not be the last. Um, my only update on that is that I've tried to embed the idea of breaks from these tools and these glowing screens more naturally into my life. There was I needed to do a dramatic gesture to pull me back from the brink uh, of complete collapse, overexhaustion, and a feeling of lostness. So 25 days with no email and no social media was mm-hmm. that version. Um, I don't commit to doing that every year. This is not like every year I go away for three weeks and I don't touch a computer. It's not that dramatic anymore. I've reduced the um, amount of times that I put my phone on the table during a meal because I don't want to be like rude. Um, I've reduced the amount of times I'm walking down the street looking at my phone because I don't want to be like robbed or, uh, <laughs> or hit by a car. I like my life. I like my property remaining my property. And, uh, and you know, it turns out we live in some beautiful spaces. And, like, if you look up, you can encounter that. You can see that architecture. You could like, see a lovely person that you might not see because you were trying to see a person on the screen uh, who might be many, many miles away from you. So it's it's more of a casual um, embedded regular embrace of the idea of balance than it is like dramatic extreme sports version uh, of balance, which is, you know, this, this big unplugging sort of social media vacation thing. Wow. Do you recommend that everybody try that the unplugging? Yeah, I do. And I, and I think, you know, there's a, there's a way to, I don't have any kids. I have friends who do, um, and of various ages, people up to 20 years old, but most of them are much younger, but those who have teenagers, especially, they have um, encouraged their kids, and sometimes their kids have even requested it. They want to have a day of the week that they don't play video games or use the computer or use the phone, which is now the computer and a video game console all in one, or they'll go to summer camp and for like two weeks and just play in the dirt again, like real dirt, not Minecraft dirt, like actual dirt, and mm. that's exciting. So I, I think you know, not everybody needs to do a 25-day thing. Not everybody can afford to do that, like you can't be off email for 25 days. That's your money, depending on what part of the world you're in and what your business is. But maybe it's as small as I will not keep the phone next to my desk, uh, next to my, mm-hmm. my bed. I will not keep it within physical reach uh, of my bed when I, when I go to sleep. I won't look at a screen an hour before I go to bed so I don't have this glowing thing. Or I won't do email right when I wake up. I'll like breathe for 30 seconds and count it and then go to email and be less of an asshole on email because of that and maybe keep my job because of that. So there's, um, I think there's many, many small acts that don't require this like huge installation, uh, mentality around, I must unplug and be pure and clean. And that's, that's not how we are as people. You sound like a pirate just then. I must unplug and be pure. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> nice. Well, you know, I had read somewhere too that, uh, you know, staring at, the computer screen or looking at your phone incessantly can actually decrease the amount of hours that you sleep, that it's hard for you to sleep at night, something with yeah. um, some activity that happens in your retina. So I'm glad you bring that up because unfortunately I'm that person that looks at my phone right before I go to bed. And then the first thing I do when I wake up is look at my phone again. So um, I am definitely going to take some cues from your social media diet that that's yeah, definitely needed. And it does. Um, there are studies out there. I can't cite any of them. So you'll just, 
have to trust me until you can Google it and prove me wrong. But there are studies that are showing how our empathy is impacted, how our human relationships are impacted Mm. when they're mediated, whether they're mediated by a phone and it's a voice thing, whether it's a screen and it's images and text. And we certainly have more ability to uh, treat people as less than people when we're not physically around them. Wow. And then and, and when we can see them as pixels, when we can see them as data. Uh, and that's that's terrifying, depending on how true it is and, and, and how far that goes, uh, because we we've been taught that this connects us and this builds and it does. I talked about the whole organizing thing and that's true. But there's a the the, the degree to which we can flick through, you know, from a swipe on a smartphone of any kind, like utter devastating, gut wrenching tragedy and like check out my new yoga pants and <laughs> look at my puppy and my breakfast is delicious. And it's, it's really, um, I don't know that much of human experience exposed us to such a wide range so fast all through the same medium. Like, does it reduce all those experiences to pixels and Instagram feeds? And they're just all just images. Now I don't, I don't know. I'm kind of making stuff up now. Uh, armchair psychology. There you go. <laughs> Well, well, tell us a bit about Cultivated Wit. Uh, what do you do there? What, and what and what is Cultivated Wit? I should ask. Yeah, that. so I'll start with what it is, and then uh, what I do, and then you can ask my business partners if I've been lying. So, <laughs> what it is is a, a small company, a comedy technology company. We, the founders, used to work for the Onion, all of us, and we sort of spun off from that mothership to continue in the comedic arts adding more tech arts to it. And the form that that's taken is primarily a, a comedy hackathon, an event series where we combine software developers and stand-up comics and other comedic performers to intentionally create funny tech solutions, often to ridiculous problems, often for no point whatsoever, but just to be creative and have fun. So one example is a uh, payment platform someone built at our San Francisco event in February called Well Deserved, and it's an online marketplace where you can lease access to your excess privilege. Mm-hmm. And it's like, if you're not going to use it, somebody else might as well benefit from your lunch at Google or your dental appointment or your ability to walk down the street without being sexually harassed because you're a dude. And so there was social commentary built in. There was actual like payment processing tech and like a simple website and great jokes. Uh, that's, that's, that's one example. Sometimes people build transportation solutions that let you get to work late and give you an excuse for being late by routing you through delays so you can show your boss, no, it was the R train or it was, you know, the, the blue line or the brown line because it is talking to the APIs of public transit authorities and intentionally making you as late as you want to be with justification. Uh, so that's one example. And then the other thing we do is, uh, create largely video content, largely smart and funny. Uh, we've done some web series work. We've done work with clients. And uh, we did a video actually about that app, that well-deserved app, which is a very satirical kind of startup launch video, really announcing the this service is so needed and it solves all these great problems and it's going to be funded by VCs because we just deserve it. So that's, that's Cultivated Wit. It's a spirit and it's got some activities. And what I do is uh, I answer that question a lot. That's a big part of my job out in the world because I'm out in the world so much. So it's, it's, I'm a chief marketing type of person, evangelist for the idea that humor is, uh, when applied to the world, makes it a better place and that technology can benefit from the humanizing power 
of humor. I think it's so important that we don't have our whole future defined uh, just by the engineers because we, we need some artists in there and c- comics are great artists. And um, pitching things. I do a lot of meetings uh, as a part of my role in the, in the company and creating you know opportunities, taking some of the flow of attention that I'm in and saying like, hey, maybe that could work in a comedy hackathon. Maybe you want to sponsor that. We have MailChimp and Squarespace and Slack as sponsors and um, so we're trying to integrate, you know, the the various worlds that I've been uh, a part of, and see how does that play in the in the realm of, of cultivated wit. Yeah. Nice. You're awesome. like Marty Khan. Oh my God, who is Marty Khan? From Showtime. Don Cheadle. Oh wow! You know, I watched. I'm so not current. That show is out of rotation in my mind. Thank you. Yeah, I'll accept that. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> I was just like, am I about to fail a test? We're going to get this far into the interview. And they were like, nope, your blurred card is gone. It's, it's gone. Like, it's been revoked. I already failed on Shawshank. I can't afford another loss. Yeah, after the blurred comment, you're, um, the Shawshank, has, it's been redeemed. So you, <laughs> you're, you're back in the club now. Oh, All I had to do was paint. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So I'm glad we got Theolonius back. Um, go welcome on back. with your next question. Yes, welcome back. Yeah, we're having uh, weather issues here in Chicago. Sorry about that, everybody. Um, lost my place, but I, I did have one one last question. Everybody that creates something and puts it out there in a public space has to uh, take the criticism that they get. Uh, but there's a difference between criticism and hate. So how do you define it to, and do you read your reviews and your critics, and do you ever respond to them? Mm. I, um, I don't think all criticism is hate. I do think it's a bit simplistic to just call everybody a hater who doesn't agree oh, with you. Oh, what I meant is criticism and hate. Yeah, yeah. Critics you could take something from, but then haters to usually follow up with in, in your mama. So, <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, I've definitely, definitely had uh, a share of that. Not nearly as bad as many others. Uh, no one's ever like, I don't get a lot of threats uh, on my life and I have to deal with like security services and things like that. I'm not, not that important, which is nice. It's nice to like not be that important, at least even in someone else's mind, because then they you're not a weird threat to them and their sense of self. Um, I sometimes engage with, um, you know, waves of of extreme anger and stupidity that come my way. I don't relish it. Uh, I'm not a person who like is like bring it on, bring on the. The, the social media um, storms. I don't try to bait people into it. I don't get a lot of. It's not really worth my time, and right. uh, and time is is all we got, man. It's really all we got, and and how we choose to use it. And so it's a very um, it's an expensive proposition to spend much time on waves and waves uh, of hate, ignorance, and stupidity, because there's usually uh, by definition always going to be more of them than you. They probably have more time than you because they're not creating stuff. So I don't want to go too far into uh, reacting because I'm not creating. Um, I will say that I've had some fun with some waves of social media ignorance. And my Storify page, I sometimes catalog these Twitter interactions. Um, But it's so maybe maybe once a year. I might even have like an annual quota that I didn't even realize until just now. It's mostly not worth it. 
there's, there's just always people with more time than than you and, and probably less talent, and that's why they have more time. And uh, and then you know, I, in terms of reading reviews and stuff, often not always. I mean, I don't continue to read how to be black book reviews. I was obsessed with them when the book first came out. Um, if I do a talk, like I'll definitely check Twitter after to kind of gauge the room. And you know, I'm feeling it if it's a live event thing or if I put up some video thing. I, I'm very curious as to how people take it. You know, I, I make work that I want to be seen, and I got some vanity. I have feelings, so I'm not like, and I want them to be supported. Like I want people to see the world the way I do. So when they don't, that's sometimes concerning, or they're just wrong, or I did a terrible. <laughs> uh, mostly they're just wrong though, and, and if I can cling to that, then I'll be okay. One last question. Um, you know, Twitter is a huge platform for many black people and people of color, as well as women. The, the highest users of social media are women and people of color. Um, as black content creators who heavily use social media networks to market, connect, and expand their reach, um, inevitably social networks have become, um, or will become rather pretty antiquated and outdated. So when is RQ, because You've talked about this before. When is our cue to know when it's time to move on to another social network where we can find ways to continue to create our own content and market our own content? Oh, I mean, I guess you always move when your parents join. Like, that's probably a good sign. <laughs> Buy Facebook. That is time to move on. You keep your account there, but you just, like, slowly spend less time. Maybe you start using more filters and, and try to find a safe space, you know, for you and your peers. The um, I'm I'm really exhausted of the the sort of um, there's I don't know it's almost like a this wild I'm getting this image of a colonial species that just comes and like swarms and feasts on all the resources and moves on to the next one like a invading invasive species that's what I'm thinking like all these alien movies I don't want to behave like that anymore I'm like I got some things that work for me and I'm always open-minded almost always open-minded ever curious but also of limited time and and resources and so the idea that i'm just waiting for facebook to die so there's a new thing for me to restart all my relationships like i'm not waiting for that at all i'm i get very frustrated honestly when when new stuff happens because it means i have more work to do it's like oh somebody else innovated today damn it now i gotta upload my address book and resync and authorize this and that and kind of we're constantly rebuilding our lives. We're constantly re-uploading our profile photos and our bios. But the, here it's 120 characters. There it's 160 characters. There it's 200. So we have these fragmented versions of ourselves replicating other people's property over and over again. I, I hope that that's coming to an end. If anything, what I would love to see is some kind of restoration um, of our ownership of ourselves in these spaces so that it's more of, okay, I own all the stuff I make. I own my photos. I own my self-descriptions and my the hashtags that I make about me. I own my captions and my behavior, my, my data trail that I leave and all these things. And if you want a piece of that, then we can work out a deal. Facebook, Google+, Snapchat, whatever's being invented right now, which is going to annoy me in a week when it launches. And I'll give you access to me in exchange for some value from you. But I, I – I, I don't think we can live much longer in a world where we're expected to be like this constant, um, you know, pioneering mentality, like living out of a 
out of a wagon and carrying all our stuff on our back like some kind of turtle and then constantly rebuilding it over and over again. That's exhausting. I'm exhausted just describing it. I got more exhausted just thinking about it after answering this question. So, no, I'm not too worried about what the next big thing is. I'm more worried about uh, if the next big thing can support what is already there and can respect, you know, the the, the ownership uh, of data and, and behavioral information about us that right now these companies seem to uh, think that they own. Like, no, you're nothing without me, without my pictures. Instagram is just like an empty vessel, and that's boring. Right. Uh, there's there's a there's a guy at the Media Lab who I just wrote about my upcoming Fast Company column is going to be about this technology called Open PDS, that a personal data store that will allow uh, something much better explained than what I just did. But the idea that like, all of our data belongs to us, we are in control of it, and then we grant access and licenses to other people to use it, rather than begging. You know, begging Twitter for my tweets back. What do you? That's yeah. mine. That's <laughs> mine. I made those tweets. <laughs> Talk to you. Twitter without tweets is just. You can't. It's not even a word. It's just an idea. It's just an idea. And ideas, you know, unexecuted, unfulfilled, are pretty worthless. Right. And I, I think it's very important that you bring up the word ownership because a lot of us create our own content on Twitter and Facebook and various social media networks, and we're sharing this content. But do we actually own the content that we are, in fact, sharing? Yeah, no, not not. I mean, a lot of these terms of service are very uh, horrible. You know, if mm-hmm. you want to, if you want to have a terrible day, read the terms of service of something you use. That will just get you all <laughs> unhappy, uh, and you'll need like Wikipedia open and like a legal dictionary to translate legalese into normal human language. Mm-hmm. But uh, at the end of it, you'll probably be terrified to use anything, and then mm-hmm. you realize the conundrum that we're in. Because we don't control it, but we right. do. We've created dependency, so we need Especially it. Especially Kindle books. Oh man, yeah. I'm sorry. You, no, <laughs> man, we are really going to leave in a hole here, man. So we're property of uh, Facebook and Amazon. Uh, this podcast now registered trademark. <laughs> of <the man. laughs> Pretty all much right. Of, all thoughts expressed on this podcast uh, belong to <laughs> Apple, Plantronics. And Samsung. <laughs> well, um, it, it is time for us to wrap up the show. So thank you so much for coming on. Just let us know where we can learn more about what you're up to and give us your social media shout outs. Yeah, I'll, I'll make this one so simple. Baratunde.com. B-A-R-A-T-U-N-D-E. I just updated the website uh, last week. Got all new pictures. Got some new videos up. I wrote some new words. I changed the font. I was going crazy. Went ham on my website. So uh, <laughs> try to take it down. It's on Squarespace. I don't think you can. I dare you. I double dog dare you. And uh, social media, I'm Baratunde on everything except for Snapchat, where I'm a very special Snapatunde. Uh, snap, A-T-U-N-D-E. And, I, and I'm really actually having a ton of fun uh, on Snapchat. It's, it's not a lot of pressure, and it's creative, and it's it's so weird, it's good. And uh, it's nothing like Twitter and Facebook and the rest of them, so I'm I've been playing there for a while. Thank you. That's uh, um, everything is on the website. Check out Show About Race. Subscribe. It's uh, three of us: black man, white man, Latino woman, uh, trying to end racism an hour at a time. Nice. Well, thank you so much, Baratunde, for coming on to the show. And thank you. Yes, thank you so much, and Theolonius, thank you so much for co-hosting. Appreciate it. Uh, had a great time. Our next show is Sunday, May third. 
We're not going to have a podcast next week, taking a little break. But next um, Sunday, the following Sunday, May 3rd, we will have our co-host, Theolonius Legend. He will be a guest. And we're inviting a panel of authors to come on and talk about their respective books. So Theolonius Legend, Tiffany Williams, and Kevin Wayne Williams will be on Sunday, May 3rd at 7 p.m. Eastern Time on the Black Girl Nerds podcast. Thank you guys for tuning in, and we'll see you next time. Bye. Finally.